Well, hope that your week has gone well. Uh, it's getting kind of busy, or at least it was busy for me this week. I'm glad to see each of you here this morning as you're able to make it. Um, as I contemplated my opening a bit this week, I had flip-flopped on a lot of different places to go to get our hearts and minds prepared for the message, to get us focused in on what the Word says. Uh, because in our verses that we're going to go over this morning, there's a lot of strong statements that we can focus on. There's a lot of strong things that we could talk about and just sit with and reflect. And I do pray that you would be able to do that a little bit this week. And as I meditated on these statements, there's a lot of different examples that came up from my life. But as we're going through this and Paul begins to broaden out his the scope of his application to more of the non-believers, to more of a worldwide application, I thought I would share some different stories uh, that I found this week that were worldwide, things that are happening in our world that maybe we don't necessarily hear about too often or know. Um, so just a few of the things from this week, stories that have happened this week or in just very recently. Sahar Dashti was charged with propaganda against the holy regime of the Islamic Republic in Iran by propagating Christianity, teaching children in a Sunday school format about Jesus. China continues to close home churches and churches that go by certain names like the Berea Church because they are not registered with the state. There's a theological seminary dismantled and all their church facilities destroyed in late September. Two evangelists in eastern Uganda were beaten and slashed with knives after leading several men to Christ. This news was reported in a Kenya newspaper on an attack that happened October 7th. Similar attacks happened in Nigeria, Kenya, Pakistan, and Iran this week. Statistics given by the Open Doors Ministry says that in Nigeria, there's a person murdered every two hours for their faith. Last year, 4,650 Christians were killed. That's just reported statistics. They are on pace to match or exceed that total this year. We hear stories and statistics like this and our hearts can be burdened. Our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters. But perhaps because it's still overseas, it doesn't impact our daily lives too much. In this world, there are great evils and atrocities that happen all of the time. What is our response? I read a story this week about the Boxer Rebellion in China that happened in the early 1900s. There, armed insurgents came into a mission station, uh, a school-like thing for children. They blocked all of the gates except for one. And they laid a cross on the floor and they told the children, if you trample the cross underfoot, you will go free. If not, you will die. The first seven or eight kids go out and they, they trample the cross under their feet, free to go. 
But then a little girl came up to the cross. She knelt. She prayed for strength. Tiptoed around the cross to go face the firing squad. The rest of the students followed suit. We can be emboldened in our faith as we see other people face martyrdom. We admire it. We applaud it. But would we do it? This morning we're going to continue a deeper look into Romans 12, focusing on five things that Paul talks about. Again, talking about handling good and evil in our world. A lot of the the statements that Paul makes seem to be positive, but he is making these demands, he's making these commands for people for a reason. So we're going to look at both sides of the issue of the good and the evil of why he is saying these things. And we're going to read our whole section again today. So we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So today, our focus is going to be from verses 14 through 16. With this first verse, we can see the connection to the intro and the stories of persecution that are going on in our world even today. And I'm not sure if you're like me, but when I read stories, when I read the Bible, when I watch movies, when I'm listening to music, I insert myself into the story based on the character that I think I relate with. And I always ask the question, like, what would I do if I were in this situation? How would I handle these types of situations? And, you know, how would I fight back against armed gunmen if they were to come into the church, for instance? You know, how do I fight back against armed people in order to protect my children, to, to protect those that are close to me? You know, I think of the story of the Boxer Rebellion. I think that's a great example of a thought process that we need to have. You know, once we become a Christian and we understand that this life is not all that there is and we don't hold on to it too tightly, we kind of resign ourselves to understand death. 
that we are all destined to die once unless Jesus comes back before that. And we don't hold on to it so tightly because we understand that this isn't where our hope lies, that we have a heavenly home that awaits us. Yes, there are attachments here on this earth that are difficult to leave behind, but our hope is not in this world. And you know, the harder that we are holding on to the things or the people of this world, the harder it is to grow in our faith, to grow closer to the Lord. And because we become so attached to them that they become like idols. And as Paul talks about persecution here, it might not be death. It could be the insults, it could be the beatings, it could be the exiles, it could be the, the shunning that they're experiencing. Various forms of suffering that the early church is going through. And with Paul, writing about persecution, I read something that was pretty interesting this week. You know, he writes about persecution quite a bit when you think about it. And as he's writing this, I wonder how his former life impacts this writing. Now obviously the Holy Spirit's guiding him in what to write, but as he writes this clause about blessing your persecutors, does he think of Stephen? Does he think of the other church members that he hunted down? Did he receive such a blessing? Now obviously at this stage he's no longer persecuting the church. And this is complete speculation on my part as it is on every other scholar and commentator's part. But you know, as, I, as I'm relating my life and how I would respond to things as I put myself into the Bible, I wonder about Paul's thorn in his side. Could it be an attack on how he was a murderer? How he is a persecutor of the church? How that, uh, a voice that would be constantly nagging him, telling him he's unworthy? because of his actions. I think about my own life and those voices, those attacks that come in to tell me that I'm unworthy and how I handle those, how I take those to the Lord. Dwelling on sin, having deep remorse as I read certain passages in the Bible. Creeping it back into your mind, there it is again. You're not supposed to be doing that. And we know that God can work all things out for good, even the evil that we have done in our past or things that have happened to us. But when we look at this teaching, he says to bless those who persecute you, to not curse them. Again, I think it's a, a teaching that we need to sit with, a teaching that stems from Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five, in a couple of places, in verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then a little bit, for, or a little bit earlier in chapter five, at the end of the Beatitudes section, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you re when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then we look at the testimony of Jesus' own life. When he is on the cross, he doesn't curse those. Instead, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, the principle for non-retaliation is all over the New Testament. But how easy is it to hit out at others in reflex? To be angry with others that start or further conflicts and problems in our lives? How much easier is it to get angry and shout someone down versus resolving issues? Human history is full of those types of stories. But as Christians, we are called to bless them instead of retaliate. You know, when we think about it, we are equipped with the capacity to respond in love and goodness or in evil and anger. Our, re- our ability to respond in love and in blessing is oftentimes confined by our own selfishness and pride. I mean, you think about agape love. You think about godly love. It is sacrificial. It is costly. It is demanding. To love somebody else with that type of love is what we're called to do, but it can be difficult. The evil of selfishness and pride would call you to retaliate, but that is to be overcome with the good of selflessness, of sacrifice, of humility, showing the love of God. We need to understand how that plays out in our life, in terms of our walk and how we're walking with the Spirit. You know, the issue of selfishness and pride, I think, is an underlying theme that Paul is addressing in these commands that he gives. It can be seen as the form of evil that impacts verse 15. As we look at verse 15, I know that I quote this verse quite a bit. To me, it's about being humble. It's about being invested in each other's lives. It's about meeting needs that are on opposite ends of an emotional spectrum. Where through our attitudes, we can represent Christ simply by mourning or rejoicing with others. And you know, when you think of Jesus' life, he rejoiced. You look at his first, his first miracle. He was at a wedding and he was rejoicing with somebody, celebrating, and he turned water into wine. And then you look at how he mourned, how he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. You know, as we show sympathy and empathy to one another, we're showing our love to be genuine. When we are rejoicing with others, we're coming alongside of them in their moments of happiness. Weddings and births can always be those types of joyous occasions, and it's fun to celebrate them, to be humble, to share nothing but praise and joy for another person in their situation. With this teaching, we need to be there for each other, as Paul says. But it's in a genuine way. It's not forced, it's not manufactured. You know, because as I just mentioned, sometimes as selfishness and pride creeps up into our lives, it can get in the way of how we rejoice and mourn with others. Perhaps instead of rejoicing, jealousy, comes out. When am I going to get married? When am I going to have a baby? When am I going to get a windfall of money? You know, Paul is instructing 
them what to do because in these moments, evil can creep up. Selfishness can come back into our lives as we look at other people's circumstances. Our hearts and minds need to be protected, thinking about godly things. You know, evil thoughts tend to force the attention back on ourselves where we're wanting others to show care, concern, and love for us too. You see, love is a deep core longing that we all have. It's a deep desire that we have. But when we're reaching out to others to fill that need, when we're looking to our own circumstances, trying to elevate ourselves over others, we can go down this path that's leading us into evil thoughts and desires. And we're gonna face disappointments that can further cast us into that evil. So we need to be on guard. Because above all, our satisfaction, our validation, our affirmation, our core longings, our love, and our understanding of what it means to be loved must come from Christ and be rooted in him above all things. I mean, very simply, if you are basing how you understand love on a relationship with another person that is not Christ, you're missing the mark. I mean, what happens to that identity, to that core longing, to that emotion, to that deep understanding when that person dies? Not when there's a breakup, not when there's a divorce, but when they die. You lose a sense of who you are because you've attached yourself to that person as imperfect as it is. You've based everything on a person meeting all of your expectations and needs and definitions of love that wasn't Christ. You're only thinking about getting your needs met. Selfishness. The other half of this verse, when you're mourning a loss, it's important to have people around you to mourn with you. I found many times people just don't know what to say. They don't know how to approach subjects, and many times they feel at a loss themselves of what to do. They just want to be there. And if you have a connection with somebody, just being there, being a presence is enough. Because many times they don't understand what they need for comfort either, as they grieve. Being there is a deeper, more meaningful thing than the social media phrase of just thoughts and prayers. Because as a person is struggling through grief and mourning and they don't know what they need, they need comfort. They need belonging, they need love. And we have that opportunity as believers to bring Christ into these situations just by our presence. Grieve alongside of them where the focus is on the loss and what it means for that individual and for you. But even in grieving, the danger is common to make it about you. Comparing loss, one-upping loss, rather than just simply weeping with one another. And in this verse, it's not defined as him speaking to believers. So it is the lost that is around us that he is talking about too. It is the non-believers, it is the Gentiles, where we can take this opportunity to bring Christ into their lives. And you know, with all of these commands that he is giving, as I've said, they kind of build off of one another. They kind of go together in a very strong, connected way. 
And with this next part, as he says, living in harmony with one another. Now, I think that this is connected with verse 18 when he talks about living peaceably with each other. Um, In the Greek, it gives off more of this sense of being of the same mind with one another. And Paul says in Philippians 2.2, using the same term, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now this is the mind that he is talking about, the mind of Christ, where we're rooted in him, where we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, going back up to verse two in chapter 12, where we want our hearts, our minds, our words, actions all to reflect Christ in unity and then in the very next clause um, in the Greek it's the same term I'll go back in the next clause of the do not be haughty it's the same term where he says basically do not have a high lofty or proud mind so the good and evil expressed by Paul in this type of mind we can see clearly the types of mind that we're to have. We don't walk around with our noses in the air being haughty, having lofty thoughts. You know, here, Paul is basically talking about pride. He's talking about selfishness. You know, it's okay to have ambitions. It's okay to have high standards and lofty goals, but we don't look down on others through the process because pride is a very destructive thing to a community, to a family, to an individual. Instead, he says they are to take note of lowly people. Again, as he is speaking to the Roman audience, you think about the power that they had. You think about the class systems that they would have. It's very easy to overlook people who are beneath you. It's very easy to overlook those who are in the destitute situations. But Paul calls out against this attitude, calls them to take part in humble tasks to be a servant. And then he says, never being wise in your own sight. This is reflective of a lot of Solomon's teachings. In Proverbs 3, verse 7, he says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Isaiah five twenty one: woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You know, being wise in your own eyes is, in my opinion, I'm the smartest person here. You know, it's, again, selfishness. It's pride. It's not having the mind of Christ because you think your mind is better. You're the authority. It's a road of evil thoughts that separate us from the truth of Scripture. You think of Solomon as the wisest man who had lived and all that he went through in the toils and the chasing after the wind and reading Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And he says this in Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Conceit and lofty minds are the opposite of humility. And there is more hope for a fool than a prideful person. I think it's difficult to talk about that subject in today's day and age, especially with my people-pleasing bone. I don't want to necessarily upset people because we think we're right. We think we know the way. 
But thankfully, Solomon and Paul say it. And you have to wrestle with scripture, not me. And maybe you wrestle with scripture, maybe you think, man, I hope this one person really hears this message. I firmly believe that all of us struggle with pride and selfishness. And that's not to be a general admittance, like, yep, I struggle with pride and continue on our way. Continue to live life the way that we always do, pridefully. It's something that we need to humbly come before the Lord with. Or we're not just giving it lip service and not dealing with it. Because there's more hope for a fool than for a person with pride. I think that's something that we need to sit with this week. You know, in the verb, in this clause of never be wise, it's the only actual imperative in these verses. The others continue that participle structure. So there's a change in the forcefulness of his language when he's talking about never be wise in your own sight. We need to take it seriously. This issue of pride and how it impacts our communities and workplaces and families. Because if everything is about me, then it can't be about Jesus. You know, I look at these three verses today and I see some gut shots to my own pride. Now granted, I don't face persecution that would threaten my life on a daily basis, but I do get called names. I do face some insults. People tarnish my reputation and they tarnish the name of God. But Paul says, I am called to bless them. Many times I don't. You know, I think back to the calling of Abraham as he's called to be a blessing to the nations. Being a blessing is living for God and telling others about him. No matter how often they may reject you, no matter how often they reject what you're saying or doing, being a blessing is about rejoicing and mourning with people through life events. You think about the lost who are around you. You are a representative of Christ to that person. You have an avenue into that person's life. You know, as I have conversations with people who are lost or people who are against church, a lot of times the argument I hear is, I don't want to step foot in a church because of all the hypocrites. I don't want to step foot in a church because they, they say one thing, but they act completely different. And as you have a connection with that person, when tragedy, when suffering hits that person, they will call you because they know you, because they trust you. They don't necessarily know me. They don't know this organization. They don't know the church. So we are called to take the spirit of God with us wherever we go, to be his hands and feet in those matters. You know, when in, a, in a chaotic world that is so divided in many ways, as Christians, as believers, we are called to live in harmony with people. There's a danger to isolate ourselves, to shield ourselves as a church because we have the truth. We have the right way, so sorry for all of you other people. You can come in here, maybe. As a church organization, as a meeting spot for this building, a leadership question I recently read in a book that I was going over, and one I think that we can apply to ourselves individually. If our church was no longer here in Minden, Iowa, 
how would our community be affected? If you were to move out of your neighborhood, out of your community, how is your neighborhood impacted? Meaning right now, what is our impact? Do we bring harmony? Do we bring Christ-likeness and centeredness to our community, to those around us that might not know Jesus? Or are we haughty with our noses in the air? Is that how people see us? Whether or not it's true, what is their perception? Because that's what they're going to believe. I had a conversation with a family member before I moved out here. And in that conversation, a lot of those types of perceptions and true thoughts that he thought came up, and I was able to address some of those. I didn't know it. I didn't know that he felt that way because I didn't, hadn't, hadn't had that conversation with him. And I was able to, to address some of the things, but it takes time to build trust in relationships. It takes engagement. It takes intentionally pursuing those conversations to be involved in people's lives, to represent Christ in truth, in peace, and love. My prayer for us this week is to genuinely look at our pride and selfishness, how we relate to one another. The church, in our families, and to the lost community around us. Because as Christians, there are things that we need to be about And as Paul writes these different marks of a true Christian here, there's things that we need to sit with in our own lives that aren't following up to what the word of God says that they should. There's areas where we need to make growth. There's areas where we need to come to the cross in forgiveness and confess. There's areas that we need to just praise because he is God and we are not. We need to be about the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom and not our own. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to dive deeper into your word and address issues that are difficult and hard for us as Christians, for us as Americans, and for our culture, Lord, I'm thankful for the grace that you have given us. I'm thankful for the word that we are blessed to have. But Lord, as I think about our Christian brothers and sisters across the globe that are facing death every day just for believing in you, and then I think of I think of our culture and the things that we take offense to. I think of our rights that we have as Americans. I think of everything that we take for granted, Lord. Lord, we need humility. We need to understand the cost of following you. So in our hardships and our trials, Lord, I just pray that we can lean into you deeper. That you would give us understanding.
that you would just give us, Lord, just the joy of the hope that we have in you, that you are, are with us, that you are in us, that you are guiding us, and that we get to be your hands and feet. We get to come alongside of you in kingdom work, and that is truly majestic and marvelous, Lord. And I am in awe and wonder at how you use broken people. That you don't forsake us, that you continue to mold us through our weaknesses, through our failings, through our complacencies. And Lord, I thank you that you continue to love us. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to understand a little bit more of you today. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gift of salvation. May we praise your holy name and your name alone. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.